Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions to get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. It's a fun and true historical fact about the hymnody of the church that many of the songs that we've been singing for 150 years and consider total classics are literally ripoffs of bar songs from, you know, a couple hundred years ago. That's, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Just putting that out there for record. It is a fun and not true historical fact about the hymnody of the church that uh, most of the songs are based on Bee Gees tunes. <laughs> that that was perfectly, would, perfectly delivered. Would be fun, that not was, true. <laughs> Joey, so, I mean, in a sense, the Christian life is about staying alive. So, sure, you know. I mean, oh, man. If, if Easter anthem, if ever there was one. Oh, well, joining us all in Tennessee is Lee Younger. I'm going to try a thing now. Please. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, dancing queen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Only 17. <laughs> That's the mashup the world has been needing, man. <laughs> you know, ABBA... And Beethoven crossover. That's I'm just saying. There's a lot of records sold there. Music industry. Well, if you're I, out I of material what... for a, for Mamma Mia four, go ahead and throw in some Beethoven. Just telling you, one was definitely a hymn that started as a bar song for sure. Yes. And then the '70s song, I just had to pull out of the thin air because Jed stole the one I was going to use previously. Yeah, Loved sorry, it. buddy. Well, you, you you crushed it with the Dancing Queen reference. Covered well. We yes, covered. indeed. That worked really, really well. Ironically, um, I'm guessing the whatever the bar song that Joyful Joyful We Adore Thee is based on, um, it was sung with far more verve than Joyful Joyful We Adore Thee is Irvin sung because Christians in every gr- group I've been sing that as if it were ironic. Yeah. The level <laughs> of dirge. kind of general, yeah, general dirginess. I will tell you, having grown up in the church, the the oftentimes and, and there are a lot of amazing hymns out there, but oftentimes the the music that you learn a, a hymn text connected to is just it's just totally off. And the the biggest example I can think of on this is is the song Oh the Deep Deep Love of Jesus, Vast Unmeasured boundless, free. I mean, this is an amazing text. And you would think that this music would just be triumphant and full of, and just full of life and energy. And the, nope. the music is, do, 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 do. I mean, it's, it's actual funeral dirge. Yeah. You can just hear yeah. the notation on the uh, on the sheet music that says "Don't get too excited." <laughs> exactly. Whatever the Italian for that is. Put on <laughs> a sad face. <laughs> We're singing about the love of Jesus here. <laughs> well, gentlemen, uh, to continue on this theme, oddly enough, we must declare one of the most serious types of emergency a gospel coalition emergency. Oh, what heavens to Betsy So talking about uh, Christians sucking the fun out of things and not being able to just be cool and enjoy themselves for five seconds. I bring you, I 
I think that's the bio for the Gospel Coalition's Twitter account. <laughs> I, I and we've had you know guests on the show who've written for the Gospel Coalition, and the, they're, there's nice they're nice people, and I'm sure the occasional useful thing in there. But I can only imagine that the the submission process involves some kind of checkbox for would you say you take your thoughts very seriously, very very seriously, or very 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 seriously. With that, I bring you a headline from the Gospel Coalition. Five reasons not to follow your heart. Uh-huh. Wow. This is from the same group of people who about every other month put out a an article about, you know, church attendance is really falling, especially among young people. We can't figure it out. Huh. That's interesting. But our main message is you're bad. Don't do things you want to do. So uh, this article starts off, um, and I can't tell if this is like being really weirdly out of touch, or maybe I'm the one who's out of touch, and this is not as big of a cultural figure, but it starts with this phrase, Apple co-founder, black turtleneck enthusiast, and former Pixar chairman Steve Jobs once remarked, there is no reason not to follow your heart. Can Can you just say Steve Jobs? Or just Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, the guy who invented, who uh, popularized the thing you're probably reading this article on. Yeah. Why would we get a remark on the turtleneck and the Pixar thing? That's that's strange. By the way, I hang out with high school guys. They're all about turtlenecks right now. So are they really? Oh yeah, the turtlenecks are back, man. Dude, are they pairing them with a handsome blazer? Absolutely. If we're dressing up now, look, if we're, if it's, if it's casual everyday wear, we're looking at a Jersey or a hoodie or something like that, a basketball Jersey or a hoodie. But if, if, if we're taking our, uh, you know, our significant other out on a nice evening, uh, downtown, we're probably looking at a turtleneck and a blazer. Dude, that's a classic combo. And I salute the trend. I'm telling you, man, the young, the, the, the young gentlemen are back to the turtleneck. So not only is the gospel coalition, unnecessarily ragging on somebody they have once again completely whiffed on the zeitgeist and once again i stand outside the circles of fine fashion because i i have a neck thickness situation that just doesn't really allow turtleneck (laughs) situation like there's just it feels a little strangly the entire time in a way that it's not meant to strangly tried and try again could i launch a line of that style of garment for men with robust necks and term it tortoise neck. Aha. <laughs> now Could we're I, talking. What what I'm just I'm saying, is there a market opportunity here? I mean, I'd give it a shot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm constantly thought of the 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 great Mitch Hedberg joke of wearing a turtleneck as like being strangled all day by a really weak guy. <laughs> exactly sums up my experience um but uh so uh, back into the gospel Coalition article continues for most of human history feelings could be embraced resisted ignored celebrated chastened silenced trained or challenged our ancestors would do a whole lot with their emotions the freedom in scare quotes of our day is far more limiting you have one option when it comes to your heart follow it this guy knows Steve Jobs wasn't actually like the emperor of the world, right? Like he made the phones. A lot of people liked him, but Steve Jobs saying there's no reason not to follow your heart is not the same thing as like, 
a government edict that you have to follow your heart. That's like, we, we joke a lot about the Christian persecution complex, but that's, that's weird. That's quite a jump. I think for white Christian guys, whatever Apple told them to do was the same thing as a government edict. That's very fair. This article might be like, I mean, this might be like really brave revolutionary text here. Totally. Could be. Let's find out. He's defying the will of Steve. No one's ever done that before. (laughs) No white guy. Under the trendy orthodoxy of expressive individualism, which is not a phrase I had ever heard of. Um, so I clicked on that. There's a link there and it just links to another gospel coalition article about how evil this thing, expressive individualism is. So I'm fairly sure they made this up, but according to this thing, they made up to be angry at life is no longer about bringing our inner selves into the tempo and key of beauty, goodness, and truth. It's about finding our own inner tune, marching to our own beat and conducting those around us. He really found an analogy. He's enjoying Mm. Uh, along to play along with our anthems of autonomy. I officially don't know what this guy's mad about anymore, but I think it's Steve Jobs turtleneck. Um, so we, we won't go through into the horror, but you know, as you'd expect, the thing is going to be, you know, your heart is duplicitous and depraved. Like that's cool. But he's got five bullet points in this article and he doesn't get to that one until four. Wow. He's trying to play hide and seek with it. Wow. So it starts off with, and again, I want you to keep in mind that the gospel coalition, uh, we, we've read a lot of articles about them on the show still yet to come across anyone that had anything to do with the gospel. So that's fun. Um, but, uh, so here's the one, and this is extensively like supposed to be the, the attention grabbing, well-reasoned, you know, in, welcoming front door to a certain kind of a uh, trendy New Yorker writing person to read about Christianity. Uh, bullet point one, our hearts are too dull. Cool. I know when you couch it in theology, it's supposed to be, like, that's just a mean thing to say about someone. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, you've never met my daughter, Nora. There's nothing dull yeah, about wrong. her in any way. I'm offended. Yeah. And, um, and, and let me by extension say, you need some cool friends, man. Yeah. There's some people with amazing hearts out there. Maybe if you like not dull in any way, like you, you, sometimes you meet people and you're friends with them and their hearts shine like a freaking supernova, dude. You need some new friends. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to say that, that Lee, because, um, he mentions, he says, two barriers. He says, don't get me wrong. I have no doubt that your heart is fascinating. Uh, take a pause here. Don't describe people's organs as fascinating. <laughs> that does not make them want to talk to you. Even though you're using heart in a metaphorical way there, that's not. That's the kind of thing that a, a 15-year-old who has never had a conversation with a member of the opposite sex but is trying to sound very deep says, but your heart is fascinating. And it's not, no, that's a miss. I bet your heart is fascinating. But compared with the following, with following the heart of God, the God of whom Augustine described as an infinite and unbound ocean of being, our hearts hold all the thrill of a mossy fishbowl. I cool. would put, I would put to you that that's a bit of an unfair standard. Yeah. Like, not as <laughs> not as deep and infinite as the heart of the creator of the universe, I don't think makes one dull. 
I'm, I'm imagining a world where this isn't a thing that he's doing with this article. This is a stunt that he pulls everywhere he goes. Like he's at a party and someone brings like, you know, a French onion dip. Someone puts a carrot in the French onion dip. It's like, wow, that's a dip is really delicious. You're, you're going to have to share your, your recipe with me. I'd love to make that again. That's really great. And he launches into this dip is dull. The word says to taste and see that the Lord is good. The bounty of his flavors is so much more than anything human hands could ever wrought. Like I would pay money to see that speech in that moment at just a random social gathering. Cause you know, he's thinking it. There's a part of him that wants to bust that out at, at a moment's notice. Yeah. Um, I, the only interaction I have with this person is this article that I've not, I've not, have not, and will not read all the way through because there are better ways to spend your time. So uh, don't, don't catch me falling into what we're accusing him of, of, uh, reducing another human being based on very little evidence, but I'm willing to bet he has done that out loud at at least some point. <laughs> Mossy fish bowl. Like, and here's the thing. Um, I've only read three paragraphs of this guy's writing and I can tell that he fancies himself to be very intelligent. Oh yeah. And maybe he is. I, I look at the, the author bio, he's got degrees and whatnot that I don't have. So that's fine. Um, but this weird Christian thing, I bet when he goes to a conference or whatever, where he hangs out with other Theobros, no one's saying, well, I like to think I'm pretty smart, but obviously in, in the light of an infinite God of a perfect brain, I'm, but a withering, you know, a withering idiot. You don't say that about yourself, about a thing that makes you feel important. So that's, that's, that's weird about maybe other people's hearts are what's important to them and you shouldn't be weird about it. <laughs> so we, and there really are some greatest hits in here. Uh, big CS Lewis quotes. Uh, we've got an Augustine quote Rousseau, which is very, Ooh, very out there for the gospel coalition. Um, his bullet point number two is our hearts are too dithering. I don't know what that means. Exactly. Oh, that, that that means to carefully reduce the bit depth of digital data. Like oh. if you were at 24 bits and then you took it down to 16, but you, you wanted to not lose resolution, that's dithering. Okay. Well, fair, fair, you know, credit <laughs> where it's due. If your heart is doing that, that's a problem. What are you saying about my heart, Jed? <laughs> I don't get to do nerd humor often, but when I do, I really enjoy it. I what I enjoy about the, this the kind of synergy that I didn't even realize I was setting Jet up for that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that, that like actually home. is a te- a technical term. Yeah, well, that is more interesting than anything that's in the rest of this article. So I think we're going to leave it there. <laughs> um, but just in case you're wondering, your heart is uh, dull, dithering, divided, depraved, and delusional. If there's any question that this guy is a white reformed Christian guy. Not only did he do it in five parts, they all start with D. <laughs> well, you know, man, in, in the interest of, you know, kind of telling both sides of the story, I, you know, we've, we've had some fun at this gentleman's uh, expense, but I, I did a little digging and I, and I think I found the kind of woke propaganda that he's concerned about that, oh. you know, are in, infecting the, the minds of, of impressionable youth. And so I, I think, you know, it, it deserves a hearing. I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, you know, uh, uh, what I found, because I, I think it's important to know why he would be so concerned. So this comes from uh, a book. You might have heard of it. It's it's called The Bible. Um, it's in Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verse nine, where it says, you who are young, make the most of your youth, relish your youthful vigor, follow the impulses of your heart. If something looks good to you, pursue it. Does so, say I mean, that. 
when you've got that kind of propaganda out in the world. But but that's one of the parts of the Bible where it means the opposite of what you think it means. Um, oh. There's some other things where you may think it's that way, but it actually means what it says it means. And the part I quote from it, the main thing is I'm the one who's right about that. Oh, and no, I decide when it. it happens. Because <laughs> what is the thing got like it. the thing you said? It needs a lot of context. Oh, but it's a thing that allows me to be mean to people. Uh, it's it. I'm just taking the word at face value. Got it. Right. You don't understand that because you're dithering. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes. Um. So, uh, once again, a Gospel Coalition article, all the way through. Nothing about the gospel. And uh, as someone who is Christian, once again, this is just Gospel Coalition. You've only succeeded in making me not want to hang out with Christians. So, ah. <laughs> cool, good stuff. We're gonna. <laughs> I'm going to leave that there. And I think I've made this joke before, but it's, it's too good. Um, I do always think of when we read about some of this with the heart of the gospel coalition version of t- the Tom Petty song where she's going to listen to her heart and it's going to lead her to perdition. <laughs> <laughs> you think you can take her away with your money and your theology? Not what the actual song says. The, the actual, the uh, real version might surprise you. With that said, we're going to move on to your fine questions. If you have a question for us, you can have us all the way to the end or scroll down to your episode description and find, click the links you find there. First question comes in and says, when I have two options before me, I often think of it in terms of picking the right one. Is there always a right decision? If God's looking out for me, what would making the wrong decision even mean? I think this is a, a really interestingly set out question. And Lee, where do we start here? It is really cool. It's a sharp question. It's a cool question. And I think that there are definitely, I mean, there are going to be times in your life where when you're completely honest with yourself, you're looking at a, a road that goes to the left or the right. And it's, and you know, based on experience, you know, based on your own self and personality, this is the way that I need to go. Um, I, th- I think those kinds of moments will present themselves to you. I think in most cases, what I would say is looking at the world in that way for me has been. Um, it would be one, it would be a little reductive and two, it would just be a lot of pressure. Um, and as a result of that, this is the way I like to think about this. Um, I'm going to make choices and decisions. Some of them are going to be wise and good and healthy, and some of them are going to be less so. Um, and what I would say is as a person who believes in and follows is trying to follow Jesus, I would say that in choices that I make that if, if you were just to, if you were going to take a black and white view and just reduce every choice that I make down into either good or bad, which I think there's probably a lot of spectrum and a lot of nuance in between those two uh, extremes. But let's say that you were to reduce everything down to, I either choose something good or I choose something bad, just for the sake of this thought experiment. The thing that I try to realize in my own life is that as a person that believes in, in, in Jesus is trying to figure out what it means to walk with God, um, that whether I uh, choose something good or bad, uh, uh, just for the sake of the experiment, I'm going to have a, access to a couple of things. One of those things is I'm going to get to learn. And one of those things is I'm going to find grace. So if I choose something that's really, really bad, I'm going to learn something from that. And I'm going to find grace from God. That's, 
Those are things that I count on as somebody who knows Jesus and who walks with God. So what the, what those uh, paradigms allow me to do is to reduce the pressure of just this reductive extreme of uh, I'm either going to make the right choice or I'm going to make the wrong choice. If I, if I make the right choice, then my life is going to be okay. If I make the wrong choice, then I'm going to screw up my life. Well, that's far too much pressure. And, and, and of course, again, I would posit that I would say there's a lot of actual spectrum in between the, the right choice and the wrong choice. But even if we go to those extremes, I'm going to learn and I'm going to find grace. If I make the wrong choice, there are things I'm going to learn off of that. And if I make the wrong choice, I'm going to find grace in that. Even if I make the perfectly right choice, I still guarantee you there are some things that I have to learn in that. And so as a result of that, what's become more important to me is not how do I make the right choice versus the, lo- the wrong choice. The more important thing for me is the question, after I've made a choice and had an experience, what do I do on the backside of that? Am I willing to be honest about what I've experienced? And if it's been really amazing, have I taken the time and the energy to express some gratitude for that? And if it's been really, really terrible, have I taken the time to, um, to, to go back and kind of watch the tape and figure out what do I need to learn and how do I need to grow so that I can, so I can do something different the next time? Again, I don't think your life is going to present you with the extremes of 100% good, 100% bad you're going to have, there's going to be some play in that wheel. The more important question for me would be, after you've made your choices and had your experiences, can you, on the backside of those experiences, look with honesty about what it is that you went through? Was this healthy? Was this good? What can I learn? Is there a place for gratitude? Is there a place for growth? Um, And by the way, I have complete and total access to more grace than I can possibly understand. So what can I learn? How can I grow? And I'm going to accept the grace, receive radical acceptance and forgiveness, or if I've, if I've made a giant mistake or whatever, and then I'm going to look forward to next time. I think that's a really, really great place to start that off. Jed, where do we go from there? That is great stuff. So This is a question where I think it's worth acknowledging that figuring out how to make good decisions is a skill that basically everybody in life needs, whether they're they're people of faith or not. And so there is a spiritual element to be brought in for sure, but there's also just kind of just a basic life skill of how how do you make good decisions? Um, How do you make decisions that, that fit where you're at? And I think one of the things that's really, really important to notice, and and I think that Christians can put a lot of pressure on themselves and miss the following is there are never perfect options. Yep. Never. It doesn't matter. Big decision, small decision. There's never perfect options. Um, there in some cases is an option that's much better than the alternatives, which great that, that often grants a lot of clarity, but there's never, there's never perfect options. You're, you're always choosing from amongst an array of possibilities that are not going to do everything that you'd like to see in the outcome. And so it's figuring out how, how to navigate that. That's a lot of why 
decision-making becomes a skill. I think taking the pressure of a perfect decision, taking the, the pressure of air quotes, a right decision, taking that pressure off is going to help dramatically in making the best decision you can, given what you're dealing with, given the information you have, given the time frame and the resources that you have. Um, looking at things as though every decision you make, the fate of the free world rests on it, will not will not lead you to making good decisions. So we we definitely for sure want to reduce the pressure. The second thing that I want to encourage you to do that again is just it's just a skill set for life and it builds exactly on something that Lee said. You know, Lee encouraged you to do kind of a a review after you've made decisions of how did they go and what can I learn and you know what would I want to do differently next time, which is awesome advice. And I would build on that by saying that you can actually get some of that before you've made the decision by asking people who've had to face similar decisions previously, asking them, and it's not so much asking them what they would do in your shoes, although that will be a part of it. The key thing is why of the array of things that are before me, tell me why you would take the approach that you would take because getting that sense of why is um, that that's like one of the great things that you'll get of doing a review of your decisions after the fact is it, it will give you a greater depth of understanding and a greater insight. The more understanding that you have and the more insight you have, the better and more reliable decisions you can make. They still won't be perfect and they, and they still won't always work out, but you can have more confidence in them. And again, it's worth noting that like, Decision-making is essentially a science unto itself. They, they teach it mm. in management schools. They teach it in leadership programs. Like if this is something that you're interested in, you, you can actually get into this and, uh, and learn more about it. You could pursue a, a degree in it really if, you, if you're interested. Um, but this, this is a field, and there, there are some really good answers here. When we go to bring God back into it, I'm, I'm right there with Lee. There is so much grace, and I think the thing that I want to encourage you is – God is not sitting there with an exasperated look on his face waiting for you to make the wrong choice so he can zap you. God is not doing that. But your heart is dithering, Jed. Y- your heart is dithering. Maybe if you didn't dither your heart, maybe this would all be easier, Trent. <laughs> um, I think that it actually um, – this is another um, reference from Ecclesiastes, which is the book that we were looking at earlier, where the, the guy who wrote that book says, you know, basically, I have seen how hard life is for human beings. You know, God has, has placed the essence of eternity in their hearts, but they can't comprehend it. And it's an interesting way of saying it's hard to be a human being, man. And and um, God definitely absolutely gets that. Um, God wants to give you wisdom to help with the decision-making process. He wants to give you courage. He also wants to give you understanding when it doesn't always work out on the other side and to give you grace when it doesn't always work out on the, on the other side. And, and I would note one other thing too, which very much goes to what Leah's saying is I think God probably overall is more interested in your growth as a person than in you making perfect decisions, which don't exist to begin with. The leaning into a process where you learn and you grow and you develop is almost certainly more important for you as a human, but also probably more important to the heart of God than any one decision that you are making. I think it's a really, really strong point there. Um, you know, the idea that there is the one perfect decision to be made, I think is part of what's going on here. And then there's the kind of the Christian perception of 
things that they'll throw out in terms like wisdom and uh, all that and, you know, uh, getting wisdom from God, which falls into that paradigm and then just becomes the idea of getting supernatural God uh, giving you the insight into which is the one perfect decision to be made. Whereas these guys are saying very, very rare things in life come down to I had a hundred, two or a hundred or whatever things before me. And I picked the one that was the magic door forward. Uh, life is often, often made up of a bunch of little decisions, reactions to decisions, course corrections along the way. And that's probably a healthier way to think about it. But that will move on to our next question. It comes in and says, there are a lot of examples of churches and leaders doing a really bad job with scandals. How should a church organization mm-hmm. deal with a failing? What would a good response actually be? I think it's a really, really interesting question and not necessarily an angle you hear get talked about with this stuff a lot. So Lee, where would we go with this? Uh, the, the people that run the organizations aren't going to like this. Um, but let's go ahead and go there. Uh, this is a really great question, by the way, because uh, not only do we see a lot of this happening, but what, like the super huge tragedy of this, aside from the scandals themselves, are the massive amounts of people who put their trust in um, certain leaders in organizations and have that trust trampled on um, after they, I mean, and sometimes these are people that serve in these institutions in, you know, from a point of view of goodwill and they have been completely disrespected or mistreated or um, just their, their trust has been totally, totally abused. So this is a fantastic question. I want to do a couple of things. Um, I, I want to talk in general, not just about institutions, although this definitely applies to institutions, but it also applies to relationships. Um, I want to talk about what a real apology is versus a crap apology. Okay. Um, so this is something that, that Christy and I have always talked to our kids about. And um, that is like, let me give you just the example on, on the ground level from my kids. Um, one of my kids accidentally steps on the toe of another of the kids. The it hurts, and so you know the the second kid says, "You know, ow, you stepped on my toe. That hurt." And the first kid's immediate knee jerk response is, "I didn't mean to." And what they mean by that is, "I'm not apologizing to you because I had no intention to hurt you." Um. And so the thing that we've always taught them is your intention doesn't matter at all in this scenario. Here's what matters in a real apology. You hurt someone. So where you begin and end is I hurt you. That was wrong. I'm sorry. I want to ask for your forgiveness when you're ready for that. If you want some more information from me, then I'll give it, but I don't need to go any farther than this. I hurt you and it was wrong and I'm sorry. Um, that applies relationally to people. And by the way, uh, Christians are terrible at that right there. Yeah. At that kind of apology. They're absolutely terrible at it. Um, and uh, that's a thing that needs to happen in relationships where you say to someone, I hurt you and it was wrong and I'm sorry. And I, I would love to ask for your forgiveness when you're ready to do that. I don't know if you want reconciliation or if I've broken your trust too much. 
but I am sorry that I hurt you and it was wrong. That's a thing that people need to get good at saying to each other. Christians especially need to get good at it because guess what? We're the people that believe in forgiveness. We're the people that believe we need forgiveness. Therefore, we're the people that believe we start from a position of we're the folks that need forgiveness, a.k.a. we don't think we do everything right all the time. So it should be easy for us to say, I'm sorry that I hurt you, because obviously we sometimes hurt each other. That's why we're the people that need forgiveness. It's really, really odd that we're not good at that. Okay, that's thing number one. As far as institutional um, exploitation and pain and abuse and all that kind of stuff, um, the problem with that kind of thing is with when you have scandals and cover-ups and stuff like that, they very, very much intended to do the thing that hurt people. That's a whole different level of evil. And to that, I want to say this. These institutions that purport to believe in Jesus Christ and purport to care about his teachings and purport to follow him, they should shut their institutions down. Full stop. Not every institution needs to last forever. They can just end. And if you have been a part of evil scandals where people were exploited and abused, and those abusive exploitations were covered up, and we now know about them, you should end. You should stop defaming the name of Christ in the world. You could just end. That would be, to answer your question, question asker, that would be the best version of this is they should apologize. They should try to make it right with the people that they have exploited or abused in these scandals where they've covered things up, and then they should cease to exist. That would, I think that would be a great place to start. I don't think that's really going to happen, but to answer your question, that's, in my opinion, what should happen. I think that is a very, very strong uh, place to start off. And Judge, what would you add to that? No, that's great stuff, man. I And I definitely agree. I, I think that, in a sense, one of the one of the big questions that churches need to ask themselves, and they they really try to avoid asking, is: Is this is your institution? And I'm not, I'm not talking about God or Jesus here. Is your institution basically all about one person? Right? Like, does this all boil down to one celebrity, pastor, speaker, author, whatever? who this is really just their brand, um, or is there more to it than that? If it, if it all boils down to one person, which is th- the case pretty uh, commonly in, in most megachurches and, and things that are adjacent to that, then part of the reason why you're seeing the responses and the really bad responses that you're seeing is they're aware that without whoever this person at the top is, we don't, we don't have anything anymore. We will close down. and we've actually seen that play out, right? I mean, there's been an awful lot of, of scandals in the church in the last 10 years, and there have certainly been ones where the top person exited and, um, that was it, you know, I mean, within, within a few weeks, the the whole, the whole thing was gone. It's not always quite that severe, but I, I think it's pretty common that everything reduces pretty massively. Um, because this kind of goes to the next thing, which is their funding strategy boils down to celebrities make a lot of money. Um, yeah. Like th- this, th- the following is really interesting and is, is actually worth knowing. Musicians make very little money. There's almost no money in music. Celebrities make money. 
Uh, and that's a totally, totally different thing. He, the guy, or I say guy, but the person at the super huge church, I mean, they may have the title of pastor, but that's not what's paying the bills. Uh, them, them pastoring people is not really where the money's coming from, but what the money is coming from them being a celebrity and, and the things that go along with that. And so I think there's a question of models. If you have a church that does want to be an actual church, that is, it's not all about one person and our funding strategy is not based entirely on celebrity and on kind of financially capitalizing on that, then there's all kinds of things that, that you can, that you can do. And, and Lee's already covered a lot of it. I mean, one thing to be aware is that it's very rare in most businesses or nonprofits, anything other than church, actually, it's pretty rare to have one person that's the CEO forever. And an awful lot of things you have a CEO for a season. And, and if you're not clear, uh, in most cases, the pastor is more or less the CEO of, of a small nonprofit is typically how that works. Um, but in most cases, you're a CEO for a while to do a certain thing. You know, maybe it's growth, maybe it's stability, maybe it's, you know, you're the founder. But in in a sense, a lot of these places are, are they are prisoners of their own model. Um, because if they have mm. been doing a model that that can't in any way adapt, then they're going to do what almost any organism done, does when it's threatened, which is they're going to focus on self-preservation. They're, they're going to do the things that they think are likeliest to keep them still extant six months from now. The, the one more thing that I would offer that I think is important to know is you're going to have to suss out for yourself what the model of a given church is because they're not going to tell you. Uh, or, or to be more accurate, they're not going to tell you honestly. Um, the, the churches that are, it's all one person and all of the money comes from that person's celebrity would, they're not going to tell you that you, you kind of have to look at what they're doing and the way that they present themselves and whatever financial disclosures they're bothering to make and, and kind of make that, that for yourself. But again, you're wondering, you know, how should, why do they respond the way they do? How should they respond? It kind of boils down to, to models and that some models can withstand a person's fall from grace and some really cannot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would echo exactly what these guys are saying and kind of going back to what I think Lee's strongest point and maybe the strongest point made here, which is in a perfect world, um, these people would just shut down. They would say, this doesn't need to exist. This college or church or denomination or parachurch ministry, because um, exactly as, as Jed is saying there, the thing that it does uh, currently um, that is succeeding at on some level is bringing in money. If we've got the these kind of scandals or issues or these large issues going on, then it is not succeeding in any way at providing spiritual care um, or doing the things that it's saying it's supposed to do. It's it's keeping a bunch of people employed. So if you have a, a totally secular business um, where there's a uh, let's say there's some kind of OSHA violation or tax thing or something, whatever, have gone other places, or you know something comes out about treatment of employees. The the kind of number one maxim is how do we minimize the financial damage of this and continue to be a going operation? Uh, in theory, uh, things that are Christian, that are particularly focused on spiritual care, should be different than companies because the number one goal should not be uh, we don't want to go get other jobs, which tends to be a very big uh, situation in these. But um, if we take this even out of the realm of we, we certainly hope that you, a listener, are not in ever personally involved in a church or organization that has a kind of 
a big world, uh, what should be organization ending scandal, but everybody messes up and every thing, every, uh, leadership structure gets things wrong and all that. So again, I think one thing that I would look forward to a healthy organization, even if we don't have hopefully as big as an issue as, you know, something like ones we kind of alluded to there is, is there a sense that the number one priority is not making this go away so that we, the people in charge can go back to being in charge and making it easier for us. Is this about making it easier for the people in charge or making life better for the people who have been hurt and the people who are under uh, the, the care of the people who have gotten something wrong. And as, as Jed said, that's kind of something that's going to be a little, a little more subtle to suss out in some ways, but that is, I think a good place to, to keep your eye if there is a situation where, um, again, it takes us back to actually where Lee started this. Are they apologizing that they stepped on your foot? Or are they apo- are they apologizing that your foot hurts? There's a big difference there. Because in the second one, as soon as your foot stops hurting, well, then we can kind of stop talking about this. Uh, in the first one, then there may be some things that they need to do because there's a behavior that went totally wrong. So if you're looking for uh, kind of a, a broadly applicable thing, I would give you uh, something like that to, as a frame for the other great, great stuff these guys gave you. And with that, we're going to move on to our final question for the week here. It came in and comes in and says, what does Jesus mean in Matthew seven when he talks about the wide and narrow gates? I feel like those verses get used to talk about hard work or not being worldly. Uh, another really excellent question here. And Lee, where would we kick off? Yeah, man, a, a, a lot of scripture gets used to say a lot of things that people, <laughs> that people wanted to say. Certainly. Um, I, I would I would start off by saying that for me this is a this is a hard scripture to hear somebody preach to me. It is a very important scripture um, that I take very personally after uh, trying to figure out this Jesus thing for a long time. So a real quick story: when I was in middle school, my family um, uh, took a day trip to a place pretty near to here where Matt and I grew up. Um, and it's a, it's a trail called Abrams Falls. Um, and it's just a, it's just a hiking trail in the kind of in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, um, here in the, in, in East Tennessee. And there are places on that trail where like our whole, like, you know, I, I had a little sister. So my mom, my dad, my, me and my little sister, we'd all four of us could walk that trail together. And then there are these, like, there are these narrow switchbacks and these, places that go between little rock walls and stuff like that, where everybody had to go in a single file line through these gaps. Um, you could not walk, uh, four alongside each other. You had to go through certain sections of it by yourself. It was just a very narrow trail and it was, it was just a totally different thing than, than these, these wide scapes of it where everybody's walking side by side. Um, okay. So hold that in in your head for just a second. In my experience in coming to know Jesus and growing in a relationship with Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the words of Jesus, I found a couple of things to be true. One thing that I found to be true is he is more gracious and generous than I could have possibly ever calculated by any experience I've ever had in any other relationship. 
there's a great um there's a great song that that Jed wrote one time called You've Made Up Your Mind. And in this song, he talks about the fact that like basically we have a conception of what uh, of what it means to uh to be in relationship with people that 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 they will love us based on the way that we treat them and that basically that that god doesn't work in a transactional way like that 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 when you have a relationship with jesus you realize that he's already decided to treat you in a certain way and so we're not on a transactional basis and the more that i've gotten to know jesus the more that i've realized that that's true in ways that are so surprising that his generosity and his decision to accept me is so unbelievably radical that I, I don't have, I, there, there is no other relationship in my life where I have any, that, that I can base what I've experienced with him on. It's just a completely unique thing. The other thing that I've experienced in, in growing deeper in a relationship with Jesus is that following him is so completely different than I ever imagined it would be. And that the things that he is inviting me into, that he calls real life and abundant life, are things that nobody else in the world would have told me led to life. Like nobody else in, in no, nowhere in advertising, nowhere in, uh, in an economics class, Nowhere in a philosophy class, nowhere else in life would you find someone who says, the more generous you are and the more you give away, the more you find. That's just not the way you're taught in the rest of life. Um, There's no other, there's nobody else that says like, look, when somebody is your enemy, what you should do is you should bless them. You should bless that person and pray for them. Um, everywhere else you find you get, you know, you get, instead of getting mad, just get even. Um, and that's a, that's a direct quote from my childhood and my home from my father is don't get mad, get even. (laughs) Um, and, and, and what you find, the more you walk with Jesus is that the teachings of Jesus, the philosophy of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus, that if you want to be the greatest of all, you should be the servant of everyone. You should serve everyone. You should give your life away. You should, if someone invites you to a dinner party, you should take the worst seat. If you're going to invite somebody to, over to your house, don't invite the most famous and most fancy person. Invite someone who could never possibly ever pay you back. You should take all your stuff and you should sell it and give it to poor people. Like the philosophies and the teachings of Jesus are so utterly unlike anything else in the rest of the world that what I've found in my life is getting to know him and learning to follow him. He, he loves, accepts and is generous in ways I I've never experienced in any other relationship in my life. The other side of that coin is the deeper that I follow him. Sometimes I find myself on a road where I am completely alone. Nobody else wants to go with me. I'm on a switchback trail. There's only room for one. Nobody else is there. And I think that for anybody that honestly follows Jesus, sometimes you're going to find yourself there. Nobody else is interested in this kind of life. I'm not saying nobody, because obviously you know other people that are following Jesus, but I'm saying you're not going to find that everybody thinks this is comfortable. 
that everybody thinks this is wise, that everybody thinks this is right. Jesus one time told a story about a guy that saved up money so that he would have a retirement package. And this is the only person in the Bible that Jesus called a fool. And the Greek word that he used that we have translated fool is the word moros, which is where we get the English word moron. That's who Jesus called a moron. And I just say that to you to say, the more you get to know Jesus, I think you're going to find a love and acceptance unlike any other relationship you will ever encounter in your life. The more you get to know Jesus, you will find philosophies, teachings, and mindsets, whole paradigms, where if you walk them, you will find yourself at times utterly, no one else is doing this. You will find yourself utterly alone, like you're on a switchback trail, um, and and it's, it's one person can pass at a time. That's a fantastic place to start that off. And Jed, where do we close this out? That's, it's a great question and great stuff from Lee. Let's look real quick at the passage from Matthew 7, but I'm going to read it to you from the message translation because um, I like that one. And also, uh, I find when you run into something in the Bible and you're not quite sure what to do with it, reading it in a few different translations helps a lot. Um, and I particularly like the message translation because it's, it's loosely speaking more of a thought-for-thought thought translation instead of word-for-word, word, and so it, it probably reads a little bit closer to what was intended. And so here's what that says. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. I find that fascinating. It's also one of the things I appreciate that's kind of plainly true. Um, I'm going through a season where I travel a lot right now for work, and so I'm in airports pretty often. And in almost every airport, at least in the U.S., uh, there will be a bookstore, and there's like a little carousel that's all Christian books, like in in every bookstore um, in the U.S. And it is exactly the market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. That is what that rack of books is. Like that, that is that precise market. And it's there because there's a huge market for it, which in fairness, we don't have to beat up on it. Like, dude, if you had a thing that I could do, like do five minutes this a day and all your dreams will come true. I, I can make five minutes for all my dreams to come true. That's that, that sounds great. Let's, let's do that. I think to quote an old preacher friend of mine, the reality is anything that you want to get to a place of mastery in Man, it's going to take a long time, mm-hmm. and it's going to take a lot of work. You want to be a really, really, really good cook, man, you're going to have to cook a lot. You're going to have to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. You want to be a really, really great musician, man, you have got to make so much music and spend so much time working on that and and figuring that out. And I, I think that that goes along with most things in life, actually. I mean, like, being a Christian is not exactly a skill that you develop, but um, if you're like, I, I want to be a person, I really want to explore my life of faith and and what God is going to mean in my life and, and how I'm going to interact with God. I mean, that is going to take like time on task, right? Like, I mean, that, you know, you, you're probably going to spend a lot of time thinking and maybe time reading and time talking to people. And um, I think that One of the things that certainly I see a lot of that is pretty cynical and kind of funny in a way that, and I think it's part of what Jesus is pointing to here is 
there are people who are trying to sell things. And when they get a sense of what the latest trend is, they're happy to hop on that trend, right? Like a few years back, the megachurch movement discovered that people, uh, that, that tattoos were starting to become trendy. And so all of a sudden you always see somebody with tattoos on stage at a megachurch. Yeah. It's, it's not everybody and it's probably not the senior pastor, but there's always somebody there with tattoos because we, we heard that was cool. Now people like that now. Right. And there's not, there's not intrinsically something wrong with that, but that's not authenticity, man. That's not, that's not inclusion. That's just, Oh, you people like that. Well, we can, we, we can do that too. And I think that that kind of points to the following, which is be really careful about the narratives that people are selling you. Um, people, and it, it's as true in religion as it is anywhere else. People are selling you a story that wouldn't it be great if it were true. And a really easy example is if you go to like a super, super, super large membership church, you know, mega church, that pastor did not write that sermon. Mm. At some point in there, there's going to be a thing of, you know, I was thinking about our time together this morning and, and just a thought occurred to me, maybe it did, but a team of like six people worked on that sermon, man. Um, in, in the same way that, you know, when, when the late night comedian comes out for the talk show, like they didn't write, uh, you know, all of the jokes that they're telling you that they had a team of people, you know, help them put that together. But we love this branded idea of this super humble, but also incredibly insightful, uh, pastor who just, who just gets it and man, he's great, you know, and we'll, we'll put money in the plate, man, to, to actually, to go back to, to our previous question in 2019, Hillsong Church pulled in nearly a hundred million dollars in revenue. Nearly a hundred million dollars in revenue. You found something that people really like, and then you sold it to them. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that because that's that's how the world works. But for you, and this goes back to what Jesus is saying, be aware when people are trying to sell you something. When people are trying to sell you something, it's a product. There are all kinds of people that want to pay a bit of money to get the quick fix that's going to solve all their problems. There are very few people that want to find a new way to live that will yield new results and really lean into that in the long term. And at least part of what Jesus is saying is that the Christian life has a similarity to a lot of pursuits where to live into the greater reality that's meant for is going to take some time and probably take some doing. Fantastic stuff from both of these guys on that question. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. You want to keep that totally anonymous. Take out the song this week, the aforementioned you've made up your mind. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Oh
feel the same But you took the cross to take me in And you will never push me